Welcome back to the Infinite Rabbit Hole, everybody. I'm your host, Jeremy, and today we're going to dive into one of the absolute best documented cases of the unknown in recent history. That's right. Today we're going to Varginha, Brazil, where on January 20th of 1966, some of the locals saw some creatures running around town. Hang tight, everybody. Let's get into this. This is going to be a good one. And for all of those that have been waiting so patiently, thank you. I know this is going to be a big change for everybody. I'm going to a solo production for now on. But I hope it all turns out good for you guys. I'm, I'm very proud of this one. And uh, this is what you guys can expect for here on out. But that's it for that. Let's go ahead and get right into this. Let's talk about the first event. On the afternoon of January 20th of 1996 in Varginha, Brazil, sisters Lilian Fatima Silva, who's 16, Valkyra Fatima Silva, who's 14, and co-worker Katia Andrade Xavier, 22, were walking home from work. All was normal and fine until the young women decided to detour through an abandoned lot as a shortcut. This would turn out to be the moment that their lives would change forever. As they were passing through, the woman noticed a bipedal creature bent over, seemingly in pain, near the bottom of a concrete block wall that bordered the property. The creature began to stand when it noticed the girls and the three young women took off running. The sisters, Lillian and Valkyra, would later tell of how they saw the literal devil. After running over a kilometer's distance from the sighting, the sisters arrived home to their waiting mother Louisa. The sisters were frantic and barely able to get a word out when attempted to tell her all about what they saw. The girls would later describe the creature to the authorities and reporters as four to five feet tall with dark brown oily skin. Its head was large and looked like it had little or no neck at all. The oversized dark red eyes were slightly upturned and there was no noticeable pupil from what they could see from the brief encounter. It had an extremely small mouth and an even smaller nose and sported three elongated parallel lumps on the top of its head that started at the forehead and stretched towards the back of the skull. As outlined in the book, UFO Crash in Brazil by Dr. Roger K. Lear, Dr. Lear outlines his individual in-person interviews with Liliana and Valkyra and also their mother Louisa. The first interview that took place at the Silva household was the younger sister Valkyra. And during their conversation, Dr. Lear received his first personal description of the creature's physical details that were mentioned earlier. A few pieces of important additional information were uncovered during their talk, in which he learned that the girl's mother went back to the spot that they witnessed the creature at, immediately after they got home with a friend of her. Valkyra did not notice any strange smell during the encounter, which others will later describe in their accounts, and that shortly after the encounter, she would have a very memorable and detailed dream of flying through the cosmos. The dream was noticeably vivid. It was more detailed and memorable than any she had ever had. Soon after this encounter and intense dream, Valkyra temporarily became ill. Next, Dr. Lear began his interview with the older of the two sisters, Lillian. Their conversation began with the same questions that were asked to Valkyra. But Dr. Lear would quickly begin going down a different path when she mentions how she believes that whatever it was, it was intelligent. She described that she was the last of the girls to turn and run after the thing began to move. She was the only one to lock eyes with whatever it was, and she instantly became aware that it was her. Although it had eyes that she had never seen before, she got the impression that she was looking at something closer to a human than any animal she knows of. After the description, Dr. Lear then asked if she had any strange dreams or memories that seemed off from the norm 
in which she replied that roughly three months later, she had a dream that the creature was in her room while she was sleeping, and at this time, she was not afraid at all. She unfortunately couldn't remember specific details of the dream, but this alone was enough of a connection between the sisters' experiences that Lear believed there could possibly be more here than originally believed. After his interviews were done with the two sisters, he then finished up with one more, with their mother, Louisa Helena. Louisa would tell him of how she would get the attention of a neighbor who would accompany her to the lot that the girls had their encounter at. There, Louisa had noticed a section along the wall where the tall grass was matted down and what looked like possible footprints, but the ground was too hard to be sure. Unfortunately, this was all that Louisa was able to add to the events of the day. She did not see the creature, and no other signs of it were found. But like her two daughters, she would tell Dr. Lear of a strange dream that she had a little while after the incident. The dream felt so real and really scared her. She dreamt that her and her two daughters were lifted up through the ceiling of her house, right into a passing airplane. She doesn't remember anything else about the dream, but she vividly remembers this part and how she felt during the dream as well. Dr. Roger Lear was a renowned investigator of alien and UFO encounters with a specialty in field of abduction, events, and physical inner body implants by unknown beings or manners. He has written a small collection of well-known books on the subjects and was even known for openly claiming to have discovered definitive proof of, quote, non-terrestrial experimentation on man, end quote. Completing school at the University of South California, Lear would spend his professional life as a podiatrist specializing in surgical procedures. With his real love and interest embedded in the world of what he referred to as, quote-unquote, non-terrestrials, Lear would go on to establish a group known as ANS Research, which consisted of other surgeons and dentists that studied the phenomenon of alien abduction and implantation, as well as performing removal of foreign objects from the bodies of alien abduction victims. After asking a series of short questions regarding seemingly random topics to all three women after each interview about the event, Dr. Lear determined that all three women were most likely abduction victims of these quote-unquote non-terrestrials. Two of the three women in the house became sick immediately after their dreams with side effects such as the need for salty food, redness of the skin, and flu-like symptoms, which led Dr. Lear to believe that they most likely have been in contact with low doses of radiation that is commonly believed to affect many abductees after their events. Unfortunately, Dr. Roger Lear passed away on March 14, 2014 from an apparent heart attack. Event 2 at 6 p.m., January 20th, 1996, the same day that the young woman had their encounter, two Brazilian military policemen saw a being matching the description described by Liliana Valkyria Silva, just over two blocks away from the site of their encounter. The creature was walking in the road bipedally and was noticeably hurt in one of its legs. The officers exited their vehicle and were shocked to see that whatever it was had zero reaction to them walking right up to it. With absolutely no resistance, the creature was loaded into the back of the police cruiser and transported to the nearest clinic. The doctors at the clinic were unable to provide any help to the creature and recommended that the officers take it to the hospital regional, a small hospital at the heart of the city. After an unknown amount of time spent at the small hospital regional, the creature was then again transported to the much larger, more advanced Hospital Humanitas until January 22nd where it passed away. This is assumed as witnesses reported a military convoy lined up at a back entrance of the hospital to receive a coffin. The convoy was tracked until they arrived at Escola de Sargento das Armas, a Brazilian army training facility in the town of Tres Corcos, only 25 kilometers from Fargina. 
At 4 p.m. the next day, the convoy left the military facility and ultimately arrived at the University of Campinas. It was there where this creature was supposedly autopsied by Dr. Baran Pajares. Pajares publicly denies having any involvement with an extraterrestrial, but has been known to privately tell some, including students of his, that he cannot talk about any of it for many years. Although the final resting place of the creature's body is unknown, it was noted there were many U.S. military vehicles and personnel in the area around the time, leaving some to believe that the U.S. government now houses the body in a secret facility either in Brazil or in the U.S. Sporadic witnesses have come forward ranging from pedestrians, workers at both hospitals, and patrons of the medical facilities confirming the presence of a strange being. But one by one, most of the witnesses have changed their story or refused to comment on the events at all. It is the assumption of many researchers and locals that there was a large-scale sweep from government and military personnel from both Brazil and the United States, threatening all that were involved in any way. It seems that a gag order was implemented on these people, with a few having secretly come forward and expressed fear for themselves, loved ones, and property if they speak about it. Although the civilians have since been very quiet about the events of those few days, there have been two entities that have repeatedly discussed the topic in a public forum. The media in the immediate area and some of the bigger networks close by have regularly covered the story of the convoy and reported that many have seen a being not from this world in the streets of Varginha. Some of the military personnel have come forward with details involving the transportation of incredible contents from the Hospital Humanitas to the Army Training Base in Tres Corcos. Many of these men and women have since been arrested by their respected military branch and or put on restricted duties before being removed from the Brazilian military altogether. Two weeks after the events of January 20th, one of the two officers that picked up the creature while it was traveling slowly in the road died unexpectedly. In a UK-based documentary on the events of the Varginha incident, the sister of this officer described her brother's last few days as completely miserable. He suffered from a very high fever, inability to eat, bleeding from various orifices all over his body, and eventually succumbed after losing consciousness and the ability to communicate. This event may be the single most important when it comes to the Varginha incident. The death of this officer proves one theory by investigators and scientists alike, and that is that if we were to ever have contact from an alien being, they would most likely die soon after visiting us due to the small bacteria and viruses that are found on Earth that their bodies will not be accustomed to. This concept was made famous by H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, and with the officer suffering symptoms very similar to Ebola, it would be safe to assume that may have happened in reverse as he was guiding the being into the police car. Further investigations into the claims of the officer's death was made by the Institute for Ufological Research's Urubahara, or Bira, Rodriguez. His inquiry is at the hospital where the officer passed away was met with refusal to answer questions. All he can get out of the staff at the hospital is that his medical death records were taken by the army the day after he passed away. While Dr. Lear was in Varginha to investigate the incident, he was staying with Bira Rodriguez and frequently visited the Institute for Ufological Research in order to plan and prepare for interviews and investigations. One interview that he was amazed to have had the chance to do was with the wife of Marco Eli Chariz, the 23-year-old officer who passed away after apparent contact with alien beings. It was during this interview with Miss Chariz that Dr. Lear discovered that the hospital refused to give her a copy of his death certificate. 
she was unable to attend his funeral that was apparently done on base without her knowledge, and that she has never received compensation from the Brazilian government or military for her husband's death. Dr. Lear noted that during the interview, Miss Shari was very reserved, and he felt that she was scared to be where she was. The signs of intimidation were ever so present, and after a future interview with the officer's sister, it was clear that what they were telling him during the interviews were rehearsed and scripted when it came to direct questions about Officer Shari after the event and before his death. But both were very different and more open about the questions regarding the time after his death. It was Dr. Lear's opinion that someone had gotten to them. Testimonies with Medical Staff Soon after beginning his research on the incident in Vargina, Dr. Lear was given the incredible opportunity to interview a few of the doctors from the Hospital Regional's medical staff. Unfortunately, these doctors claimed to have received threats to their licenses, lives, and families if they ever broke their silence and wished to be interviewed anonymously. They all claimed to still be watched and sporadically contacted by both government and military entities regarding their silence. One of three doctors, who was an orthopedic surgeon, went on to begin the interview by telling of how there was an increased presence of military personnel in the hospital that night, which is something that didn't really cause alarm because, due to the proximity to the nearby army base, military personnel were constantly coming in to be seen or visit someone that was injured. What did stand out, however, was the fact that at multiple different locations in the hospital, members of the military wearing fatigues were posted outside certain doors and did not allow anybody in or out of their posted point. The most disturbing entry that they were guarding was the access door to the surgical wing of the hospital. They weren't letting anyone into or out of this area. Not even surgeons were allowed to get in. He explained that on his side of the door, inside the surgical area, there were a lot of people running around in haste, fear, and confusion as the military personnel that were in the area were very loud and angry. They were not allowed to know what it was that they were all rushing to help. All the staff knew is whoever it was, they were brought in through the back door and brought directly to the operating room. His task was to perform a fracture reduction on the leg of the patient. He goes on to mention that he has never been put into the situation where he was to perform a surgery with multiple military men with live ammunition and their weapons in the room with him. As he entered the surgical suite in which he was to perform this surgery without any prior communication about history, charts, vitals, nothing, he and his team were met by nurses that were standing by to get them into their surgical attire. The faces of their nurses really made him nervous. They were very scared. They constantly dropped sterile clothing and equipment and kept looking towards the area of the surgical bed. After the process of getting ready, he finally began to make his first approach to his mysterious patient, and he was shocked to see how small it was. His original thought was that this was a dependent of someone in the military, but then he looked at the face of it and realized instantly that whatever this was on the surgical bed before him, it was not human. Of course, his reaction was to ask what it was that he was getting ready to perform surgery on and was told by what he assumed to be a high-ranking member of the military group in the hospital at the time that he was not here to ask questions, do what was asked, and fix anything else that you see along the way. All of his questions may be asked post-operation to specific members of his team just outside of the operating room, and until then, nobody was given permission to leave until after the operation, and they have been released by his staff. According to Dr. Lear's book, UFO Crash in Brazil, the doctor described the creature that laid before him and his operating team. Quote, The being was less than five feet tall. It was bipedal, with two arms and two legs. 
The color of the skin was dark brown, which appeared rather shiny, like it was oily or wet, but in fact the skin was dry. The skin also looked reticulated, like large scales, but when you touched it, the demarcations of scales were not present. He went on to explain that the most noticeable feature was the head. It was massive compared to one of the humans by scale. Three bony lumps formed ridges that spread from its forehead to the back of its hairless skull. In fact, the entire body was hairless. The eyes were large and red and had the look of being liquid in texture. It had a very small mouth, and only two holes where a human's nose would be. The neck was extremely skinny and did not look like it could support the massive head. The chest lacked nipples, but the lower portion of the stomach did have what looked to be a belly button. It had really thick thighs and very skinny arms, which gave the creature a rather strange structural look. The hands held only four fingers and lacked a thumb. While it lay there during the operation, the doctor noticed it moved its hand a few times and got the idea that each finger can move in multiple directions instead of just back and forth like a human's. The thighs ended in a structure that looked identical to a human kneecap, which led into a shin structure also like that of a human. The foot was elongated and narrow and ended in three toes that lacked toenails like ours. Another appendage that reminded him of a thumb but closer related to a duke claw of a canine that ended in a rather large claw on the inside of its feet. Dr. Lear began to ask the doctor about the wound that he was to perform surgery on, and the doctor replied by explaining that it was a clear compound fracture with a piece of its bone pierced through the skin of the thigh. The wound was fairly old as the blood around the injury had clotted. The x-ray that must have been taken prior to the doctor entering the room showed that the structure of the thigh resembled that of a human, and he was comfortable that he could conduct the surgery successfully. His main concern was the pain level of the patient. He described how he had attempted to ask if there was any pain, but the creature just stared blankly at the ceiling, occasionally moving its head and hands. There was no reaction at all to the surgery being done. When examining it under a microscope to look for signs of infection and a number of other things, the doctor noticed that structurally it was very similar to human blood, but the platelet count was much higher, which gave him the idea that the wound was not as old as he thought it was, as a higher platelet count could be the cause for faster clotting. The bone, however, was visibly different and had a pink hue to it, along with a plethora of holes that made it look like that of a late-stage victim of osteoporosis, but he got the feeling that this was more of a typical structure and not a disease. He mentioned that due to the shockingly light weight of the leg, he found it more probable that the bones were much lighter than ours. He didn't know why, but over time decided that wherever it came from may have a higher force of gravity and a lighter body would reduce the amount of damage that a stronger gravitational force would do. Dr. Lear was amazed by the answers the doctor was giving and went on to ask about its breathing and pulse in which the doctor replied that there was no detectable pulse or heartbeat, and its breaths were very shallow. When the doctor hesitated for a second, he told Dr. Lear that he was nervous that the next part is very hard to believe, and that he was still deciding on to tell him. But Dr. Lear argued that there would be nothing that the doctor could say that would make him feel as if they were lying, and expressed his eagerness to hear the rest of what he had to say. He continued by describing how towards the end of the procedure, there seemed to be a greenish gas or mist being produced from the creature, but he could not tell from where. It seemed to seep through all sides of its back as it lay on the medical bed. He was then given instructions to find the source of the gas, and as the doctor was getting ready to turn the creature on its side, his eyes locked on its eyes, and he was suddenly rushed with knowledge about humans and how the creature and its kind saw us. The doctor told Lear how they felt bad for us for a couple of reasons. 
One, being that we're capable of great things, but lack the ability to access them. And the other was that we didn't understand how this form was temporary, and we were completely disconnected from our spiritual selves. The last thing that Dr. Lear learned that day was that within 24 hours, the creature had completely healed from its injury and left the hospital in satisfactory medical condition. The third event. Now, before we dive into the third encounter story, Dr. Lear gives a brief description in his book on the difference between the U.S. and Brazilian firefighters. In addition to the responsibilities carried out by American firefighters, the Brazilian firefighters are considered another branch of the military. Along with the Brazilian Army, Navy, and Air Force, there are multiple reserve branches of the military, such as the military police, the military firefighter corps, and so on. The responsibilities of these militarized firefighters are to conduct everything such as wild animal control, search and rescue, combat flooding, crowd control, fight fires, and everything in between. The third encounter begins with a phone call to the local fire department on January 20th, the same day as the other two encounter stories, to report a wild animal on the loose of the Jardim Mandere district's wooded area. Four firefighters were dispatched to the area and were met by five people, including two teenage boys. They reported that whatever it was was walking into the tree line and down the embankment into the woods. The boys threw rocks at it, but it did not respond in any way. The first thing that the crew did was tell the civilians to get out of the area in case the animal was dangerous, and then they began their search into the wooded area. They made their way down the hill and over a set of railroad tracks before finally entering the patch of forest that the animal was reported to have entered. It took about two hours before they finally captured a strange creature that stood on two legs and had the general shape of a human being but lacked human features. Before they were able to capture it, the creature ducked ran and hid in a few different areas attempting to not be captured. Three of the firemen stayed back and began transporting out of the woods and up the embankment, while the fourth ran ahead and called their commanding officer at the firehouse and requested him to come immediately after describing what they had in their custody. Shortly after the commanding officer arrived, an army vehicle with men in fatigue showed up and took full control of the situation. They boxed the creature up in a wooden crate, put it onto the back of their military truck, and covered the box with a tarp. A bricklayer working on a cement slab near all of the activity by the name of Henrique José de Souza was very curious about what was happening with all the military vehicles. He had approached the original group of people who had reported the incident and asked, of course, what was happening. He decided to follow the armored trucks after learning what had happened all the way back to their base at ESA. After the story of the first two sightings broke, as mentioned before, members of the Brazilian army came forward and described how the creature was caged on the base for 24 hours before being flown by helicopter to Brasilia, and eventually flown to the United States. Along with concrete being done in the facility, there was also a house being built across the street, and three of the men working on the roof that day eventually came forward to tell of what they witnessed. The men originally thought that there could possibly be a fire in the woods and became concerned with their current position and the wood-framed house that they were on. They stood watching from their high vantage point, as what they thought was a child, appeared from just out of their view, away from the steep hill and into their full field of view. Due to the height of it, they originally believed that this must be a rescue of a child that was somehow stuck at the bottom of the embankment. But after they had a chance to see it unobstructed as it made its way across the small field, they quickly realized that whatever it was, it wasn't a human child. They described it as standing about five feet tall and had brown, shiny skin. As they watched the firemen descend down the steep hill, the creature turned to look at its pursuers, and the men on top of the roof were able to clearly see large red eyes and three short, long protrusions on the top of its head. 
As both the creature and the men entered the woods, the construction workers lost sight of them, until they came out with the creature in their custody. The men described the transition of the creature to the fire truck, the hand over to the army, and the creating of the creature, identically to the way that the cement worker described, and that was the last the men saw the firefighters, military personnel, and the creature. The area of this event is a small community of residential houses and took place early in the morning. Unfortunately, I could not find an exact time, but there was a decent amount of people in the immediate area awake, active, and outside to witness the event. For the most part, all events of the Varginha incident were very consistent, and this event does not disappoint. The fourth event. Again on January 20th at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, a jogger was out in the same vicinity as the third event. He claimed to have spotted seven members of the army walking around the tree line with light rifles. He watched as the personnel took turns walking into the tree line before coming out again. During one of these trips into the woods, he heard yelling coming from the man who entered, and three others followed, leaving three still on the outskirts of the tree line. He heard three shots get fired, and shortly after, two of the men walked out, both carrying the same sack over their shoulders. Whatever was inside was alive and moving around. He continued to watch as the other two men came out of the woods carrying another sack over their shoulders. This one was perfectly still. The military men made their way up the same exact embankment as the one mentioned in the third event, and threw both sacks into the back of their military truck, and sped off as fast as they could. One person eventually came forward claiming to be a member of the crew in charge of capturing these creatures in this particular event. He told about how one of the other men walked into the tree line and yelled that he had found it. Two other men and this witness ran in and witnessed two creatures, one clearly injured on the ground that matches the same descriptions as all other counts of these creatures, and another one standing over it covered in thick black hair. When the one standing up heard the man's yell, it quickly took a threatening posture and was shot at twice by the man already in the woods and once by one of the men entering the woods. The creature died instantly. Now here we have a few things finally not consistent with other sightings of these creatures. One is the one covered in thick black hair or fur. And two, the same being taking a posture that was threatening. In all cases we have gone over so far, none of these creatures seem to even care couldn't react to the humans due to their injuries. Yet, another civilian came forward about this particular incident claiming to have been out for a walk in the area. He had mentioned that there were military jets flying around the area and a group of seven men on the ground walking the tree lines of the patches of forest wearing military camouflage. He mentions that there were seven men walking in three groups. The first consisting of two men, the second consisting of two men, and the third consisting of three men that were not in military attire. As a man entered the woods and yelled to his team, the remaining member of the first group, as well as the two members of the second group, ran into the woods, very shortly followed by three gunshots. The three in the civilian attire stayed out of the wooded area completely. Dr. Lear describes in his book that another ufologist, local to the area by the name of Claudia Colvo, has also found some interesting information about this particular event. His research shows that a local farmer had shot one of these creatures before it took off running, and he called the police. Another man came forward to Mr. Kovo, claiming that the weapons that the men were carrying were FALs, or Fusil de Artilleria Leve, which translates to light artillery rifle in English. After this event, we are now at four separate creatures, 
The first was spotted by the young women on their way home from work, and which was most likely the same one that was picked up by the police officers and brought to the hospital. The one that was captured in the wooded area and transported away by the army, and the two that were highlighted in this story. Out of the four, one was dead, one suffered a broken thigh bone, one was caged up and transported to the U.S., and one was shot by a farmer. The Zoo Unlike the prior events we talked about, the first event at the Virginia Zoo took place on April 21st of the same year, 1996, and unlike the other events, the story of Miss Terezina Gall and her run-in with the creatures she believes to be the same as the ones from January 20th happened at night. Miss Gall was attending a close party at the restaurant in the botanical section of the Virginia Zoo with her husband when she decided to step outside on the veranda and have a cigarette. She stood far enough away from the building as to not be rude by letting her cigarette smoke flow into a restaurant where people were still enjoying their meals, and the place she stood was consumed in total darkness of the night. Miss Gall had the fright of her life when she noticed something standing on two legs just meters away on the other side of the handrail surrounding the patio she was on. The lack of light made it difficult to see all of the features of whatever it was, but she did notice the oily skin large head, a goldish helmet of sorts, and big red eyes. She sat there frozen for what she felt like was five minutes. She watched in fear as whatever it was stared back with its self-illuminating red eyes. Eventually, she made a run for the door and grabbed her husband. She did not tell him why she had forced him outside with her until well after the party that night, but when they headed out to where she was originally enjoying her cigarette, the creature was gone. Now, 12 days later... Two deer, a tapir, an ocelot, and a blue macaw all died on the same day at the zoo. After tests were run on the animals, the cause of death could not be determined in any of them, and was considered to just be a strange coincidence that they all died on the same day from unknown causes. But if you go back to the encounter between the police officer and the creature found wandering the street, the officer died shortly after coming in contact with the being. Did the animals of the Virginia Zoo suffer the same fate? Now that we have touched on all of the events that are readily available to the public regarding what are now referred to as the Varginia ETs, ETs of course standing for extraterrestrials, we can now ask the question, how did they get there? The Crash of a UFO Orlina, Augusta, and Enrico Rodriguez, an elderly couple who lived as farmhands, were asleep at 1 a.m. in the morning of January 20th, 1996. The property in question is only six miles northeast of the small city of Virginia. The couple were awakened suddenly by the cries and noises made by the agitated cows at the property. They were running around, belting out into the night, running into each other, and some even crashed into the side of the building that they were in. Enrico was the first to get to the window, followed shortly by Orlina, who became instantly afraid of what they saw. They described it as looking like a submarine in the sky. The long, cylindrical craft had zero lighting and sound emitting from it. The smooth metallic skin was unblemished, aside from a large tear near the backside facing the onlookers with white smoke exiting the wound. Chunks of metal were mentioned as flapping around in the wind as the craft floated just five meters above the ground. The metallic substance reacted like paper to the forward motion. The direction it was heading showed that it was coming from directly over the Jardim Andiri forest, where the second being was captured later the same day, and the two others were either shot or killed before being dragged out in sacks by the army. Many researchers agree that what makes the most sense is that whatever happened to the craft 
must have happened while it was passing over this forest. A possible internal explosion occurred and a few of the crew members or pilots of the craft must have been blown out over or near the forest and took cover in the nearby woods and wandering unknowingly with head trauma among other injuries into the very nearby area where three young ladies spotted one on an abandoned property and a police officer transported another or the same one to a local hospital, the rest that survived most likely hid in the cover of the forest possibly protecting the more injured and possibly even the dead bodies of their fallen shipmates. And when the ship finally crashed into the nearby outskirts of Vagina, in an area heavily populated with farmlands, one or more exited the craft before being shot at by a local farmer, as I mentioned in another smaller report earlier. Another telling of the UFO crash was told by a man by the name of Carlos de Souza who was traveling in the area to take part in a light aircraft competition that had been set up by other amateur pilots. It was about 8 p.m. on January 13th, exactly one week before the events of the 20th, as he was approaching MG-26, a state highway leading to Vargino, when he began to hear grinding sounds that he thought may have been coming from his truck. Before he pulled over, he spotted a long cylindrical silver craft in the sky parallel to the highway that had a trail of white smoke billowing out of somewhere he could not see on the craft. Carlos ended up following this craft and stayed as close as he could for over 10 miles before he eventually headed over an area that wasn't immediately accessible by roads around his position. He could barely see it but was convinced it was coming down and it was going to land somewhere over a large hill in the distance. Eventually, he found a dirt road that took him in the direction he believed it to be heading. When he finally arrived, he was shocked to witness a very large military and hazmat evolution unfolding. Helicopters with searchlights, military trucks with large pieces of heavy fabric over the beds, with everyone running around in camo uniforms quickly picking up the debris and throwing it into the back of the covered trucks. Mr. Souza exited his truck and began walking toward one of the ambulances at the scene to ask if he could help in any way when a soldier spotted him and began yelling. He quickly found himself at the wrong end of a handful of rifles, with men in military uniforms yelling at him to leave. Carlos was allowed to walk back to his truck, and he left. On his way, he decided not to go to the competition that he was so excited about attending, and began to drive back to his home in Sao Paulo. Eventually, he stopped at a roadside restaurant for a cup of coffee, but found himself just sitting in his truck instead. Nearly two hours had passed when two men approached him in his truck and asked him if his name was Carlos de Souza. Carlos replied, yes. Then one of the men asked what he had seen, in which Carlos replied that he had seen everything. The men didn't seem pleased with the answer and began telling Carlos very intricate aspects of his life that many people wouldn't normally have access to before one of the men said, you saw nothing. This rightfully scared Carlos as he saw this act as a threat to those that he had mentioned, such as his parents, wife, and children. But one thing that they point out in Carlos's story is that there is a complete lack of other witnesses. But before you throw his entire story out, I would like to add that Carlos claimed to not know of the events of the 20th or the creatures spotted in our Virginia until roughly nine months after his sighting. This is when he began coming out with his story and researchers jumped on very quickly. And one thing that his story had that the others didn't was that the area that Carlos pointed out as being the crash site had a very large section of the field with newest patches of sod that hadn't even been there long enough for you to not see the rectangles of earth patchworked into the hillside field. Another thing to keep in mind was that Carlos described the craft in the exact same manner and physical description as the other story 
and added aspects such as the white smoke that lines up perfectly with the supposed crash site on the outskirts of Fagina. These details make it very hard for many researchers to throw away Carlos's story, which brings up the idea that a small number of researchers have, and that is that there could have possibly been two craft, and due to the short distance from the army base, these craft could have been targeted by the Brazilian military for some reason. Carlos's crash site was only seven miles from said base, and the elderly couple's site is just slightly further in a different direction. In addition to these five major events and the crashing of an unidentified flying object in the vicinity of Argentina, Brazil, there were numerous smaller events reported throughout the area and within a reasonable time frame in relation to January 20th. In May of 1996, a student from the local university was driving along the highway when he spotted a creature matching the description of the one seen in January run into the middle of the road before turning around and running back into the bushes in the direction it came. That same person also claimed to have seen a strange UFO in the same vicinity in January as well. Another student by the name of Hildo Lucio Galdino claimed to also see one of the creatures in the alleyway outside of his window. He described it as being between four and five feet tall, having small hands with only three or four digits, brown oily skin, and when he yelled out to get its attention, the creature ran off and Hildo never saw it again. Besides, the many sightings of strange creatures that seemingly came from another place outside of our planet or dimension, there was a plethora of other interesting things going on as well. According to Syndacta, the Brazilian Authority on Air Traffic Control, the cities and towns of Jalcaba, Santa Catarina, Sumer, Sao Paulo, areas of Manas Grayas, Guabira, and areas of Amazonas all had numerous pings on control radar systems of unknown origins ranging from months before the incident of Virginia to months afterwards. Ufology research centers across the same area witnessed a majorly noticeable increase of the submissions of videos and photos, as well as reports of craft landings, strange electromagnetic effects, strange creatures that many blamed on the Latin American post-child of cryptozoology, the chupacabra, and even attacks from said creatures. Strangely enough, the spike in this almost two years of increased activities spiked in January and February of 1996. Coincidence? How about on March 1st, 1996, a mere 39 days after January 20th, the then American Secretary of State Warren Christopher and Brazilian Minister of Foreign Relations signed an agreement titled The Agreement of Cooperation for Pacific Use of External Space. On March 2nd, the day after this agreement was signed, the General Administrator of NASA, Daniel Golden, visited the Brazilian National Institute of Space Research. The consensus among the researchers of the Virginia incidents believed that the cooperation between the two countries was directly related to the bodies of the alien beings captured on January 20th of the same year. Now, with everything that took place in Virginia, Brazil in 1996, what are your opinions on these fantastic and incredible accounts by eyewitnesses? Now remember, these events are recent, and the Varzina case could very well be the absolute best documented case of the unknown in recent history. Until next time, travelers, I'll see you right back here on the next fork of the Infinite Rabbit Hole. Have a good one. Goodbye. Goodbye.